Recovery Elevator, episode 397. It was a nice buffer too. Like we'd always have drink in the fridge. It just really, it was easy to hide the fact that I thought I had a habit, you know, retrospect, obviously, but it also was a way for me to also just get away too. Uh, like this? Yeah, that should work. Mix down. <laughs> yeah, keep going. Yo, yo. Mix down. Three, four. Yo, yo. Wiki, wiki. Three, Mix four, down. There we go. Seven, eight. Wiki, wiki. Mix down. Guys in the house. <laughs> I love it. Wiki, wiki. Mix down. There we go. Three, four. Wiki, wiki. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I'm so excited to be here with you guys today. On today's episode, we have Santino. He's 34 years old, he's from Brockton, Massachusetts, and he's got 43 days away from alcohol at the time of this recording. Great job, Santino. Listeners, we have got an incredible lineup of upcoming events, and here they are. We've got our alcohol-free photography course starting this Saturday, and registration is now open. We've got our intensive dry January course called Restore. This starts January 1st, ends on January 30th, and we're meeting 14 times via Zoom in January. And then we have our online summit. This is called Regionals. This is February 3 and 4 of early next year, and this is for Cafe RE members only. And then What's Up Ukulele course. This is February 4th to March 18th next year on Saturdays. And then we are going back to Costa Rica April 12th to the 21st. And then we've already got dates lined up for our annual retreat in Bozeman, Montana, August 9th to the 13th of next year. You can go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash events to learn more. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. And now let's hear from my favorite resource in recovery, Cafe RE. For years, I tried to control my drinking on my own, but I always felt alone and like I needed something else. When I discovered Cafe RE, I realized there were so many people just like me looking for a better life. Cafe RE is a private, unsearchable Facebook group that provides 24-7 access to a community of people whose goal it is to live a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find authentic connection, love, and encouragement. With supportive and educational chats hosted throughout the week, there are plenty of opportunities to connect with others on the same path. Cafe RE is a place where we grow and learn together, and with golden rule number 22, we have a lot of fun while doing it. For just $24 a month, you'll have access to the community, all of our online chats, the opportunity to attend in-person meetups, get discounts on sober travel trips, and get the chance to be assigned an accountability partner if you'd like. 10% of monthly membership even goes towards our service project, where we partner with nonprofits to help those affected by addiction. Head over to recoveryelevator.com and use the promotional code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. We hope to see you there. And speaking of Cafe RE, I want to say thank you to all of our chat hosts. You guys do such an incredible job. Okay, let's get started. By far, the best part about doing a recovery elevator is witnessing the transformation in people's lives after quitting drinking. I heard on a PBS special the other day that our actions are felt for seven generations in our lineage. So when you quit drinking, when you work on yourself, when you do the inner work, those restorative energetic waves will continue to ripple for probably another 150 years or so. It's crazy stuff, but I do believe it. In fact, I feel a significant chunk of the trauma causing today's addictions is what went down in this country and across the globe 150 to 200 years ago. 
Okay, generational trauma could be a whole different episode, but let's get back on track. Today, I want to talk about a possibility when we quit drinking, and that possibility is love. Here at RE, we believe the opposite of addiction is connection, and sitting atop of that totem pole is love. In order for you to experience any kind of love that doesn't involve a bottle, you must first love yourself. Let me say that again. Love does not organically happen if that Bruno voice inside your head tears you apart day after day. So quit drinking and then make the task of loving yourself paramount. Or start loving yourself now and the alcohol might fade away. Okay, the opposite of addiction is connection. The apex of that, I feel, is love. Now, what is love? Well, it's a phenomenal song by Hathaway that came out in 1993. But perhaps my favorite definition of love comes from Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth, where he says that love is recognizing oneness in a world of duality. Now, the ego, the thinking mind, the Bruno voice, it craves separation, judgments. I'm right, they are wrong. And when we are drinking, we are reinforcing that divide. In fact, the worst side effect of alcohol is isolation. But when we drop the bottle, then we give ourselves a chance to find love. Or maybe let love find us. This past Saturday, I had the honor of being the officiate at the wedding of one of my favorite sober rock stars named Dusty. He's been interviewed on this podcast twice, episodes 206 and 300. He's got a fantastic story. Go back and take a listen. Now, Dusty quit drinking in 2015, and since then, other members of his family have also followed suit. There's a saying that says, when we heal, others around us heal. And I saw that firsthand this past Saturday when I met his extended family. Dusty married a wonderful woman named Lotus. And I think one of my favorite parts of the ceremony was when I accidentally said lusty. Ugh, a Beneford type thing. Dusty, Lotus, lusty, honest mistake. And when the photographer took a group photo later that evening, someone yelled, say lusty on three. Oh boy, I don't think we're ever going to forget that. Now, Dusty and I are big Sunny and Philadelphia fans. I managed to get three Sunny references in the ceremony, and get this, Dusty even mentioned Sunny and Philadelphia in his vows. It was awesome. Okay, how I started this intro was saying the best part of RE was watching people get their lives back. And not just getting their lives back, but consciously creating a life that doesn't involve alcohol. Dusty, my man, thank you for being the best sober buddy somebody could ask for. I love you. I'm sending you and Lusty, damn it, I did it again. I'm sending you and Lotus all the love in the world. You two deserve it. Love. Yes, love yourself first. Now, this isn't a checklist item, but a constant work in progress. So for love, we all have parameters, labels, and boxes of what that looks like. But with recovery and love, it can take so many different forms. Not just between a man and a woman, or a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, you all get the point. But love can enter into all arenas of our life when we remove alcohol. I have a sunset viewing deck in my yard. And when I went out there well after the sun had set one evening, I had a perfect view of the Big Dipper. Montana is called the Big Sky State. One look at the stars on a clear night and you'll understand why it's called that right away. So in the middle of my stargazing, one of my Nigerian dwarf goats named Elliot hopped right in my lap. Not to eat my shirt or to try to bite my ear off, but to hang out. It melted my heart. And I remember saying to the goat, I love you, Elliot. Love in recovery can be rediscovering nature. It can be planting a garden. It can be zipping around on a one wheel. It can be learning a new instrument, picking up an old instrument. 
It can be laughter. Now, love regarding yourself, which is vital again, love is learning your own song and singing it when others need to hear it most and singing it when you need to hear it most. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's intro. At the end of this episode, we have a musical submission from Ron, so stick around. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp, before we hear from Santino. Life can be overwhelming, and no matter who we are, problems are guaranteed to arise. For me, sometimes when new problems come up, I feel a bit paralyzed. It's important to assess situations and to talk to people I trust when it comes to finding solutions. I've gone from thinking I have to figure it out all on my own to asking for help when it comes to problem-solving mode. There's no better feeling than finding solutions and gaining confidence through problem-solving. A therapist can help you become a better problem-solver, making it easier to accomplish your goals, no matter how big or small. Therapy has always been important to me because I need someone who can catch my blind spots and be clear with me. Someone who can see things that perhaps I'm not catching, and someone that can give me professional feedback without me feeling hurt or judged. We take such good care of our bodies. The mind should be no different. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. Get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and switch therapist anytime. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com elevator. Santino, how are you? I'm good, Paul. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. And Santino, what kind of name is Santino? Tell us about that. Sure. Yeah, so it's definitely uh, it's Italian roots, Italian and Spaniard roots, but it does, it's uh, formed from uh, Italy. My mom is from Sicily. Okay, I like it. How would you say it if you were in Italy? Your mom's yelling at you, you're out playing in the street. You'd be like, hey, Santino, come for dinner. How would you say that? She usually would say Santino. Uh, Santino. Santino. I like that. I like that. That's a great name. And then some Italian gibberish afterwards, you know, telling me off, which only I can understand what she's saying. And then it's kind of one of those, like, I don't know how anyone else, you know, speaks Italian just from my mom's. (laughs) Sure. I love it. All right. Santino. I'm just going to go with Santino. All right, Santino. Let's get right into this. When was your last drink? My last drink was May 24th, 2022. So today would be 43 days. Today is 43 days. Fantastic, Santino. How do you feel? I, I feel really good. Um, I think first and foremost, mentally, I feel very, I have mental clarity back. Clarity is definitely a big, big thing. I feel lighter, uh, not just physically, but definitely uh, physiologically, psychologically too. Um, but I feel really good. Really, really good. 43 days. Fantastic work, Santino. Listeners, I did a call out for early sobriety several episodes ago, and Santino was one of those who reached out. So I'm excited to hear about your story, Santino, how you got the 43 days, where alcohol led you before that for you to make that decision that alcohol is no longer serving you. But before we do that, let's learn a little bit about you. Give listeners some background about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun, Santino? Sure. Great. So, um, so I'm... 34 years old. I'm from Brockton, Massachusetts. 
I currently work at, for a nonprofit, uh, homeless shelters across the Southeast uh, area of the state. Um, I'm specifically a veterans case manager and I help with housing and, you know, people off the streets and see what we can do for, you know, housing vouchers and whatnot. It's obviously its own crisis in itself, but I'm part of the, the front lines there, if you will. I do have a family. I'm married, been married for now uh, seven and a half years. I have a child as well. We have a son together, two and a half. His name is Ben, short for Benito. So following the Italian line there. So he's great, fun age. Things for fun. I, I try to I try to find some things that you know, I do for fun. I think more, more primarily what it is is just being a dad, being a father. We have crazy schedules and whatnot, work schedules, remote schedules, whatever, if he's got to stay home from daycare. So a lot of it is just really being there for him in the moment. Um, I don't really have any individual fun time as most traditional people would say but that's my fun time as well and then of course try to add in some self-care when you know he goes to sleep or something love the name guess what? i have a dog is a standard poodle named what do you think his name is ben you got it yeah, <laughs> yeah. and uh i am i am newly married and i'm so happy about that in my life i'm married to a that's wonderful right. woman from thank you santino from a, a yeah, wonderful really. woman from colombia and our dog, she gave our dog uh, uh, the nickname Bencito. You said Benito, and, yeah, uh, yeah. and now, and now, like organically, I'm like Bencito. Especially when my dog gets a haircut, he looks completely different. So the rule is, we call him Bencito until his hair grows back in, and then we look at each other like, is he now Ben? Yeah, he's now Ben. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. yeah, there you go. I love it. Real, real quick, in the last, I think you said 43 days, right? Yes. In the last 43 days, how has it been with your two and a half year old with the presence? I think you said, I don't really have traditional fun time. You know, you're a father of a, of a, of a, of a younger child. How yes. has the 43 days changed? Are you more present with your, with your son? Oh, absolutely. So it's been polar opposites. And I think more, primarily not obviously on his end, he's not able to remember anything right now. I think next year, maybe a little bit after that, his most early childhood memories will definitely kind of start to develop how we can develop. You know, we ask ourselves, what's the latest? I think for me, it's like four years old, I could probably remember. So I kind of utilize that as a motivation too to say, you know, I don't want him to ever remember me as, you know, X, Y, Z. Um, but for me, it's definitely present, being present, being in the moment, you know, being genuine in the moment and being able to remember the moment too. Because I think part of you help, you know, child rearing and it's in its whole thing. And that concept, um, conceptualization for me, it's like, you want to be able to remember how you did the work so that you can enjoy the work that you did. You know, that's always very important to me as well. And in the past, it wasn't like that. It wasn't like that at all. Not even remembering, remembering those moments is what kind of really threw me off. I love it. Yeah. Good stuff. Santino 43 consecutive days. We're going to get into that shortly. But let's back it up a little bit. Santino, when did when did you take your first drink and what was that like? Yeah, so I always go back to this. My absolute first drink, first sip drink, I can remember like it was yesterday. I was 10 years old. I was 10 years old and it was a tall boy, 16 ounce Budweiser can. How much that tall um, boy, did you, uh, how big was that first drink? Yeah, so I took the first sip and it was actually my dad's drink. I got it for him and he asked me for, you know, to get it for him and I opened it up. And I remember thinking like, oh, you know, I associating, right? My dad drinks it, I can, you know, whatever. And I took the first sip of the foam that came off of it. And that's where it was, it was in retrospect, that was the, my first euphoric moment. Oh. I was like, wow, this tastes really good. You even enjoyed it's, the foam of it. Yes, yeah. I did. I did, because I associated that foam with like soda foam. 
Sure. And I, you know, and other foams, you know, sort of foam in general as a kid, it's fun, right? You kind of associate like bath, you know, bathtub, you know, bubble bath, whatever, foam in the pool. Foam just in general, I just kind of really associated that it was like happiness with bliss, you know? Sure. And that kind of helped sort of gain that association of, wow, this is great. So yeah, that was my first. Yeah, I went to a foam party in college and that was a lot of fun. Well, right? It's fun, right? It adds <laughs> yeah. sort of that level of fun. It's just, you know, it's kind of a bizarre, like, you know, material, but I guess yeah, everybody loves foam. And then, so you're 10 years old, you crack your dad's yep. tall boy Budweiser. Walk yep. us through the progression after that. Were you, where did you hit the ground running at age 10, 11, 12, take a break, pick it up in high school? <laughs> I, Let's hear it. I think my dad saw me take the step from 10, obviously. And he's like, oh, that's not for you. That's for, you know, that's for dads. That's for, you know, your dad, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, kind of just had that like, oh, whatever. And I kind of had that connection with him in that regard. And so I think 12 and 13 is when I started experimenting for sure with other, with weed and beer, but definitely beer primarily because where I grew up in a small town in Missouri, I grew up in Midwest. That's all we really did. There wasn't anything else to do. And it was such a small town that you really could get away with, you know, this type of stuff, this type of activity. No one really, I guess, cared. It just was a culture thing. I would go as far as saying that you could go to the store with your upperclassman friend and they would, you know, allow it. They wouldn't you know, check IDs or whatnot. They, it is what it is. It was a mom and pop store. It was good for the business, you know, purchases. Everyone knew everyone's parents. So it's like, hey, if I catch you, you know, it would, you know, tattletale anyway. So it just, it was just one of those things. But 12 or 13 is when I first hit the ground running for sure. Yeah. And then high school, did you pick it up? Sure. So, and then into high school, my freshman, sophomore year, that's when it sort of snowballed into experimenting what blackouts were, uh, hangovers were, entering sort of that cultural of, of, how we view alcohol, but how we view the socialization with alcohol and how beer for me became that vehicle to socialize and to be a part of that crew, to be a part of not only the crew person, you know, quote unquote, but also you feeling valuable. And I think that's where I sort of held that value, you know, drinking with, with friends and drinking with people maybe who didn't even have my interests at heart. I just felt like I fit in the most. So you fit that mold nicely. Sure. There's wow. this message that we received growing up in America and across the world that I like yeah. how you said it, that alcohol is the vehicle to socialize. Yep. And it's also blacking out and throwing up and partying hard at beer funnels and all that jazz. Uh, yep. It's it, that is not stigmatized. You, you see that and it's like, oh, that's normal. You know, I, I saw beer fest. I saw, you know, I've seen animal house. I saw old, uh, old school. Yeah. yeah. So that stuff, unfortunately is it's, that is normal. It's like, you see that in the movies, like, Oh, I got hammered last night. I don't remember anything. Well, you're just part of a normal four year college public institution. That's what goes down. Yeah. We celebrate that, right. It's celebratory. It's, you know, a uh, rite of passage. Like we talk about too. I know you've talked about other episodes for sure, but it's, we celebrate something that's so atypical, which then almost goes against how we perceive things in life that we do think are atypical and not celebrate. So it's something to think about too, when we talk about like, when you really have critical thinking into this and really like learn, like, why did we celebrate this? Or why are we celebrating something that is atypical or something harmful? You know what I mean? So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. About three years into, into sobriety, I did a TEDx talk called duped into alcohol. Now I take full responsibility for my journey, but I remember like three years away from alcohol. It's like, wait a second, this is, this is kind of effed up of how we're viewing this, how we're, how we are rewarding binge drinking all, all across the globe. Right. And yeah. it's our youth that gets affected the most. 
and then and then the youth eventually becomes you know the people who are leading the country. So, okay, you're in college, or or, or just pick it up, pick it up where we left off. Sure. Right after, so during my high school years, that's what it was. Junior, senior year, kind of the same way. You know, hanging with the football team, hanging with the you know band geeks, blah blah blah. You learn your extracurriculars, and then I go right into the military. Out of high school, I joined the Air Force into basic training. And then when I got to tech school, is usually, usually what you do after basic training, that's when I started just picking up where I left off. You know, basic training, you can't do anything, obviously. You can't drink, can't smoke, whatever. So you can call that a little bit of a six and a half week cleanse, if you will, forced cleanse. And then I got to tech school and I kind of just picked up where I left off. I made friends, I socialized, I did what I did, you know, and you, you, again, it was like one more way of like rite of passage, like, yeah, celebrate, you know, we made it this far, we joined the military, blah, blah, blah. And Military is really synonymous to drinking. I mean, if you really think about it, I know a lot of people have their views and, and different opinions, but for me and my experience and being an army brat for that time being, yeah, absolutely. Most military affiliations or military gatherings, there is going to be alcohol involved. That's the culture. That's just what it is because we are already on the front lines of the nation. So of course we have the most stressful job, if you will, if you want to look at it like that. So yeah, that we will find something that would de-stress the most too. But it definitely was like a gathering too, a party element as well. We working for the weekend, go back to work during the week, whatnot. Um, and then I got stationed to New Mexico when I turned 19, 20. That was my permanent duty station. And again, you just kind of pick up where you left off. And I think for me, the problem for you know my alcoholism, if you will, was hiding in clear, uh, clear sight, in plain sight. It was incognito underneath that culture, underneath that activity, underneath like being with people and drinking, having the drink was like, yeah, this is just what we do and not questioning that status quo. That was my biggest thing. I never questioned it. Sure. You yeah, know, Sam, just, you know, Chris yeah. Oyen, who's the other podcast host here, we split interviews. He talks about his time in the Air Force and how his alcoholism or, or his alcohol consumption, better way to say it, really ramped up in the military. And you yeah. mentioned- it's a damn stressful job. Sometimes you are deployed. You're in a stressful environment. Yep. This this thing will uh, help view the current state of your life, life situation in a different, if a different manner, alcohol, right? Okay. So were there some times where the repercussions were there? Like, oh shit, this, is, this isn't a good thing right now. Maybe I need to explore the relationship with alcohol. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the, the, the kind of sort of wake up calls I would get is it's really started definitely when I was on my way out of the Air Force. I did six years. So I got out when I was about 24, almost 25. And I think the, rep the first repercussion I had was my first DWI. That was definitely it was actually I went home back to Missouri. And how old were you? Uh, I was 23 going on 23. 24, I, okay. 23, yeah, 23, sorry. Yeah, I, and I remember that was my first, like I had just finished my enlistment. I just went gathering with friends. It wasn't even me getting, you know, on my way to get effed up. It was just a gathering, whatever. And I happened to get pulled over and it could have been a blessing in disguise because my, I blew the breathalyzer 0 0.08. So it was really at the legal limit. My drink, it wasn't crazy. It wasn't a crazy night. It was just whatever. And got pulled over. That happened. I had to spend the night in jail. And then I had to start the journey of reinstating my license. We all know how that goes. Uh, I had to go to court-ordered AA. It was either do 12 weeks at AA or do 30 days in jail. And so I wanted. To, I obviously picked uh, what the judge gave me. Yep. Um, and then a reduced charge. We got it reduced to reckless driving. But I had to go to AA. And that was my first experience with AA. I was 24. And at that point in time, I had moved states. So I went from New Mexico to Missouri to Missouri, to Florida, because that's where I was with my then uh, fiance or girlfriend, if you will, before we got married, that's where she was. And so I decided to move out there, 
really pick up my, you know, start my new chapter, but I had a lot of baggage, including trying to get my license back. That was the biggest thing. So I started AA down there and I did it every twice a week or whatever it was once a week. And I did that for 12 weeks. And that was court ordered. Uh, and that was court ordered. Yep. Did anything so, stick, stick there or was it like, gosh, darn it. You know, I have to be here. Yep. Nothing stick right off my back because I was drinking before and after those meetings. I think they showed us the movie under the influence with Keanu Reeves. I remember that and Andy Griffith. And I remember that movie and I was like, God, this is horrible. Um, and the people in the group were the same way. Everyone was jaded. Everyone was just laissez-faire. Everyone, you know, no one took the guy seriously. And I didn't, therefore I didn't take the system seriously. I didn't take what this was supposed to be about seriously. I was 24 going on 25. I was still young enough to knock a few back and go on my benders. And I, I kind of just really didn't care. I wasn't ready, if you will. I was still asleep. I wasn't waking up yet. So I did the 12 weeks. I got my license reinstated, you know, a couple thousand dollars later, you know how that goes. And I continued on. I worked part-time jobs. I was trying to, you know, save up money. We we're trying to get a place together, all this stuff. This is 2013, 2014. And I really, my drinking really ramped up. I think that's when I started binging, bending, you know, going and bending. We didn't have any children. It was just me and her. She went to work. I went to work. Maybe, maybe not. Um, I think it really became a problem. I started lying about a lot of things. I started lying about, you know, pathologically. I was lying about going to work when I didn't have a job. I was lying about where money was. I was lying about my consumption, but I was hiding underneath the culture. Once again, we were going out on the weekends to our friends and drinking. We were going over a friend's house and drinking. So it really kind of, it, it, it like I said, it blended very well it was a nice buffer too. Like we'd always have drink in the fridge. It just really, it was easy to hide the fact that I thought I had a habit, you know, retrospect, obviously, but it also was a way for me to also just get away too. If she went to work or was on a trip or, or whatever, and I had a weekend to myself, there you go. You know what I mean? No responsibilities. You know, we're living check to check anyway, who cares kind of thing. You know, you kind of fall in that slump. You fall in that slump of, of just existing and not living is how I looked at it. And then we moved to Massachusetts. So we moved to Massachusetts in 2015 for school. She came up here for law school. I came up here for community college undergrad. And I think being full-time students was one more thing that added to the blendedness. Coming up to Boston, having you know drinks with your friends, you know, call that college life now. For me, it was a little bit further out, but you sure. know, my college life experience of really, really ramping up my, my addiction, my, my drinking. And again, it hit in clear sight. And I wasn't really caring about stopping. I wasn't caring about trying to correct this because I didn't find it was being incorrect. Um, I was just living the life and I wanted to have a good time for my own sake. You know what I mean? And no one questioned me and I didn't question myself. So it still was great to have it as a secret as well, where no one's asking. It's all it's far from the light. You know what I mean? It's all in the dark. It's far from the light. I'm going to keep going till I, till I can't go no more. And then that's when I started to realize that, yep, the, in, the inevitable of this coming out is, is coming. Was that a realization on your own or was it your wife? Did somebody reveal this to you? Because sometimes we're blind nope. to it. I mean, yeah, many people sure. are blind to it. I was absolutely blind to it, but it was actually me. It was self-awareness coming through and self-realization coming through. It was saying like, you know, I graduated from college, you know, three, three some years later, she graduated law school. I was 30 now at the time. And I knew at that time I graduated, I was like, yep, this is, this is a problem. This is becoming a problem, but I'm still doing it and I can't stop. You know, I try to do the whole, you know, uh, what do you call it? Moderation. I know that's our, our thing we like to use. Wasn't doing anything. I would stop cold turkey. Wasn't doing anything. 
I even sought out therapy, wasn't really doing anything because I associated with beer as a celebration, as something that was a gift to me, always to me. Real quick, and with so, the yeah. therapy, did you guys yeah. talk about the alcohol? Because a lot of times you, you book therapy and then you're like, ah, I don't drink at all. So yeah, so I did talk about it actually. It was the only time I was honest with my disclosures of mm. alcohol was to the psychiatrist. Okay. He asked and I, I obliged, I said yes. So that's when I learned about alcohol use disorder. I learned about mild, moderate, severe. I learned about you know your maladaptive behavior. I learned about the things that I was doing that was contributing to that maladaptive behavior. So on you know the clinical sense, uh, Paul, I, I understood what this was happening, what was going on. I just was still doing it. Sure. Okay. So it sounds like your late twenties uh, or maybe even early thirties yep. and you've recognized that the writing is there. This could be a potential major roadblock in your life to where you want to go. You tried to moderate, you've tried to quit cold Turkey. You're not finding traction. I recall my journey in there when nothing was working. I had a couple of oh, shit moments. Well, many were like, Oh wow. Like, I, what is the, what's the first step? I have zero control over this. I am powerless. Did you hit that moment? And what did that feel like? Yeah. So I think the moment that really kind of catalyzed, if you will, my, like my willingness to like, all right, I need to make a change for the better. Like honest, like an honest, good change and stop with the BS and stop with the half-assing and all that stuff was when I really had to come clean to my wife. Mm. That's what it was. My when spouse. was that? So this was very recently. Oh, okay. Um, this was very recently, actually, um, this year, very earlier this year. Oh, okay. So you can imagine between 30 and 34, the ages, I was still doing everything I was doing, but, and she even now, after she, I confessed and I had to come clean, she even told me, she was like, you know, I think I knew, but I never questioned it because sure. I trusted you, you know, sure, you know, because, you know, the smell, right? You're coming home and the smell and, you know, think, you know, things are, your behavior is different, you know, these things that you don't notice when you're under the influence and you can't cover those tracks. You know what I mean? My biggest thing was like, there was bottles everywhere. Uh, but yeah. So Santino here at RB call it burning the ships. I found yes. major traction on my alcohol-free journey when I did just the same you did with your spouse, with my parents and my brother. It was like a reverse intervention. I almost like to call it said, Hey, this is what's going on. What was that like for you when you told your spouse and how did that, how did you feel after that? So when I finally came clean, I, I felt this juxtaposition of emotions. It was, it was sort of subtle elation, but also at the same time, like very, very heavy shame and, and shamefulness and brazen and, and almost sinfulness, if you will. It was very, like that was outweighing the elation of, oh, finally, this anxiety has gone. Finally, I don't have to hide this anymore. But it was overshadowed completely mm -hmm. by like the shame and the guilt. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. What happens after that? So that moment after that happened, complete silence, you know, we're processing everything right now. You know, we're, we're processing, like literally processing. No one's saying anything. Tension is real. And I think after about half hour, after that confession, after, you know, just really saying it out loud, you know, we kind of go in separate rooms. We, you know, we take in space. And I think from that day up until very recently, we started to actually start talking, like having conversations. Sure. So I'd say for a good 30 days, it was very silent in the household. Your typical conversations, having the our toddler as a good buffer, you know, taking care of him, these things, dinner, blah, 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 but no conversations. What do you think opened the dialogue back up? I think the time, 
a little bit of the time um, reaching out to a community for me, going back to AA was one. Um, reaching out to my best friend, childhood best friend that I confessed to that he kind of knew about too, but didn't really whatever. Um, but he really having that support. And then of course, having the support of my sister, um, who's been who's been pretty much my accountability partner and really kind of letting her know what's been going on and kind of giving me sort of that courage, like being able to, you know, ask if she's okay, you know, my spouse, being able to know that, you know, hey, I'm, you know, apologizing and, and trying to like come up with a plan of like, look, this is what I'm doing now to kind of get back on track the value that I'm finding in my family, that I want this, that I'm willing to put in the work, you know, these kind of things. So the dialogue of having a plan, basically. Sure. That's an open dialogue. Now, one of the things why I feel about burning the ships is so important is, of course, it creates accountability. You can't unhave those conversations. You can't walk backward after that. Um, but the, another thing is there, there's so much energy consumed in hiding everything. Where's the bottles? You know, where are we going to get the alcohol? Is this person going to see? So there's energy that's liberated when we burn the ships because we're no longer, all right, they know, right? So then we can take, um, usually it's a significant amount. We take that energy and, and put it towards the plan. Like you said, put it back towards going to AA or whatnot. How has AA been a part of your journey? Do you go to meetings still? Yeah, absolutely. So I do attend AA, which is actually right down the road. Um, for my job. And I go there at least two or three times a week um, is what I try to do. And I think also to um, the community too, like, like I did 10 years ago, I tried AA, right? I just wasn't there yet. You know, fast forward a decade, I'm there. Like I'm a, I'm a light, enlightened about the tools that are given that AA represents and, you know, beyond the spirituality, because they do have that sort of concept and take it as you will. We all have our own, you know, higher power of what we see. But for me, I think it's been a great tool to help navigate, um, you know, via that spirituality, but more so via the community. That's how I kind of look at it. Um, being around a group of people that can that we have this thing in common helps me feel like I'm able to continue on with some, you know, with some more strength every day. Sure. I love AA and I go weekly. I try to go weekly to a meeting on Monday night just for those same reasons. A to, you know, to stay the path that recognize there's other people in my same town that struggle. And it's going to be part of a community. And I also, I, I want to build it. Uh, I want to build recovery in person. There's not a ton of cafe RE members or RE members here. Yeah. And AA is a fantastic program. Let's, uh, let's back it up a little bit. 43 yeah. days ago or 44 days ago or 40, yep. yeah, 43. Was there a rock bottom moment? What, what happened then? What spurred these 43 days? So I think there was no really, you know, rock bottom moment. Probably not so. The like I said, I think the rock bottom moment was literally coming clean to my spouse. Mm. I think literally telling her the truth about like everything. Like not like I said, dabbling like oh I think this right. I think literally just saying everything that I was always so afraid to say, and actually allowing that floodgate to 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 fall. Right. I think allowing the levee to finally break. And then and I remember when I was coming clean, like the first couple of sentences about like hey I'm an alcoholic. I think I have a problem. I know I have a problem. And then the next sentence being, I've had, I had a lot of internally, I was having a lot of anxiety, just saying it out loud, right? Words, sentences, you know, grammatical context here of just speaking, conveying. And I was like, you know, the more and more I was doing that, the more and more I was feeling better and more relief about finally, the truth is finally out. The truth is here. It's out. Yeah. It's out loud. And um, listeners, yeah. you're, you're hearing how Santino did it. And that's how I recommend it. You might, you might've heard it be like, whoa, that's uh, that's intense. I think if you said it, you said, I am an alcoholic, right? It's sometimes we, we, we try to paint a picture. Well, it's, it's really not that bad. You know, I didn't, I didn't drink Tuesday and, and, and Thursday night. I kept it on. Yeah, but like, if you come out and just say, Hey, 
this is a major problem. I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a alcoholic. It is what it is, but it's almost yep. liberating. And listeners, I've broken up with the word alcoholic before. I can say it. I say it when I go to AA. It's it's just a word. It doesn't define me of who I am. But I remember saying those words too. It's like, oh, finally, it's off my shoulders. It's out. It's in the it's in the universe. And then that energy gets liberated. Now, this is almost a blanket statement with burning the ships that I think proves true. The ships are going to get burned regardless, whether you're doing it proactively, having that reverse intervention, or the sheriff's office is going to burn the ships for you, or the doctor yeah. will burn the ships for you, or yeah. the community will burn the ships for you. Eventually, something's going to happen where your ships are going to get burned. If you ride this thing out long enough with the progression, it's going to happen. And sometimes it's death, unfortunately. But I, many people I'd interview, they, they get to the point, they're so sick and tired of being sick and tired, they burn the ships. And listeners, if you can hear that right now, the ships are going to get burned. It's either going to be by you tomorrow, today, or by somebody else next month, next year, five years down the road, but that's painful. Okay. So you burn the ships and then, and, and then 34 days ago, I know it was when they burned the ships, then the 34 days started, you know, there was a challenge before that. Walk us through these last 43 days. Yeah. So that happened, obviously, every came it came out. And I think for me, it was it was time to obviously take formal accountability for myself. The first step for me, like literally that night, was I stepped outside on the balcony and I, I was breathing, you know, breathing in the night evening air, just kind of, you know, taking a breather. The first thing that really came to my mind, Paul, I'll be honest with you, I was scared of was gonna be the withdrawal. That mm. was gonna be my my biggest fear because I knew back in the past when I'd stopped, you know, two, three days. I went right back to it, not because I really wanted to, because I kind of had to, um, to really keep my equilibrium going, my homeostasis that was that I was normal, but it was atypical because I was going to get the shakes and all that stuff. I had a really bad withdrawal. It was really bad. I've had some in the past and I've known of them and I'm very knowledgeable of them and how that works when it comes to like detox and whatnot. Um, and I've even had some stents in those as well. But this was going to be part of a little bit of my punishment, too, that I thought of. This was my reckoning. I called it this day. I called it my reckoning. And I also called it my own, you know, sort of this is your punishment, Santino. This is what happens when you mistreat yourself and you mistreat your others. It's all coming back to you. All the days and the weeks that you led up to this or thought you were going to change or, you know, oh, I want it's not going to hurt me today. Tomorrow's another day. It's finally coming back to you in one lump sum. And I thought of that. And I was like, all right, let me prepare for it. So I prepared for the withdrawal and that's what happened. And it actually wasn't as bad that I've had before, but it was noticeable. And then that's when I was like, all right, it's day one. Let's, let's do this thing. Um, let's really like honest, honest to God, like have your honesty up in the forefront and don't BS yourself. BS everyone else. That's fine, but not yourself because hmm. you're still alive. You're still you, you can still, you still have your autonomy, right? That's how I looked at it. I was like, give yourself that grace, but also give yourself the accountability. You know, only us as people as ourselves know how much and how less we can take, right? Our thresholds, our managements. That's us at the very core. And that's how what I thought about it. So from that, you know, point of view, that's how it started. It started with the withdrawal. And then afterwards, I said, like, all right, day one, let's start going. I did a uh, 72 hour fast. That's what I did. So right wow. after the withdrawal, I did a 72 hour fast. Yep. Right after and the withdrawal or during it? With with the withdrawal. And I know people are going to think, oh, my goodness, blah, blah, blah. For me, though, Paul, for me, 
it was sort of a punishment. Sure. I get it. I was like punishing myself. Absolutely. Yeah. I was because I've done that before in the past and I've, I've, I've dabbled with fasting too. Like it's kind of part of my whatever, but I did it. I was like, I'm just going to do a 72 hour water coffee fast. That's it. So wow. technically for fast, it's a dirty fast, but yeah, that's what I did. Yeah. And real it was quick. Good, like cleanse myself. Oh, okay. Yeah. Real quick listeners with, with detox, you know, if you are going to burn the ships and quit drinking today, be very careful yep. about detox. Yes. Alcohol is the most dangerous drug in the world to withdraw from. So keep that in mind. Wow. 72 hour fast with alcohol withdraws. But I recall yep. that punishment too. I remember me saying, Paul, don't forget this feeling. This is why yep. we're quitting drinking. And there was this bigger voice in me walking down the sidewalk day two. I didn't sleep last night. That's okay. My bed sheets are soaked in sweat. Remember yep. this feeling. My heart was racing. Absolutely. And I, I was just like you, Paul, I was like, this is it. This is what you're here for. This is what you're here for. Like, I know this sucks right now. I know you want that drink. I know you want to get right back to normal. He's like, but this is it. It's time to battle your atypical behavior with what might, some might say atypical remedy here. And this is what that is. It's a little extreme. It's very extreme. But you know what? The consequences of the uh, inverse of drinking are even more extreme. That's how I thought of it, too. The consequence right now in the moment of the withdrawal of the fast or whatever you want to call your stage is not going to ever outweigh the consequence. Of sure. what the inverse of alcohol would bring. And I've said so, quitting drinking is the hardest thing I've ever done. But caveat, if I had to continue drinking, that actually would have been the hardest thing to ever done to ride yep. that broken roller coaster to the bitter fiery end. Now, yep. in these last in the last 43 days, what resources have, have helped you? Um, so biggest resource obviously is recovery elevator. So I've listened to the podcast. Um, I guess you, what people call it, lurker, listener, whatever you want to call it. I've been doing that for the past year and a half. Well, so, thank you, Santino. Appreciate it. Absolutely, Paul. And I think what really got this started was your TED talk. <laughs> it came up on my ah. YouTube algorithm. Um, and I was like, oh, dude by alcohol. What is this guy talking about? <laughs> and I was like, I always am impressed with TED talks anyway, because people like speaking in general. Sure. And then you're speaking, you're kind of hitting the nail, a lot of my nails on the head. I was like, oh, this guy's kind of, okay, that party, he moved over there, Spain or wherever the country you're in, wherever it was. And, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, this guy's kind of like, okay, he's kind of around my age, whatever. And I was like, maybe he doesn't know what he's talking about, though. Because I was like, maybe he's just being a whatever. There's and a chance. At the end of it, yeah, at the end of it, I was like, this guy, you know what? I can really relate to this. This makes a lot of sense now. Um, so that's really helpful. And then another source is the apps. I'm using one app. It's called uh, Freak. I think it's I Am Sober. Uh -huh. um, and it's really helpful. The timer it has what uh, projected money you're saving. You're saving up to this point. I think at this point, I've saved $1,500. Yeah, so that big time. Before yeah. we hit recording, we talked about an $800 rent increase that's going on in Brockton. Yes. Which is why you're going to another town. So that's not going to hurt. Yep. So that, it also shows calories. So I think it just hit like, you know, 150,000 calories or whatever, you know, that's food what's involved up. too, you know, the snacking, but you know, you go to snacking after that too. So it's all guesstimate, but that's really helping to keep it in perspective for me. And then also I think what really helped too, Paul, along with these milestones that people are getting discouraged after the first two days, or if you make it a week or the two weeks, keeping those minimal milestones, like I got the 24 hour coin mm. and then I got uh, a one week coin. And now I got my recent 30 day coin from the group and from my sister. She sent it to me as a surprise. And I think honestly, Paul, I am welcoming those type of associations with this journey, even though I'm still really early, I think, with this journey of attacking, like, look what's, look where the good things are coming to you and not the bad things. Yeah. You're saving money and you're getting recognition in the sense of, look, look what you did. Look at the hard work you're doing. Don't so, forget the mental clarity that you said in the first three minutes yeah, of this clarity, interview. Yep. 
That alone, I mean, if you go to the pharmaceutical aisle of any grocery store, there's so many products designed to mental clarity, get rid of the brain fog, you know, wake up and get ready to go, or you could just stop drinking. And one more thing with burning the ships, you've, you've hit a, you've had so many value bombs here. You, you, you said your childhood best friend and your sister, yep. right? Again, you didn't yep. just burn it with your wife. You're like, all right, let's keep going with this. This is how serious I am about it. You love it. Got to do it. And then the small milestones, like let's not go for one year, no beer. Actually, that's a really cool program. They, those guys do a great job, but do, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, let's, let's go for one day. You hit one day and then, um, you know, when you haven't had a day of alcohol-free living in the last 10 years, holy shit. Like, let's not go yeah. for a year. Let's go for a day. Let's go for yeah. a week. Let's go for 30 days. I love that. Um, there's a couple of things I want to get to before the rapid fire round here. So something else happened yeah, on, on, on 43 days ago in the nation. Talk to us about that, how it correlates with your sobriety date. Oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up. So obviously it's kind of this weird, you know, for me, it's a little bit of a weird sort of tracker as well as, uh, you know, points in, in this chronological scale. So 43 days ago, May 24th, 2022, that's when the Uvalde in Texas shooting, uh, mass shooting happened. And I'll be honest with you, Paul, it woke me up. And that day when I saw that happening on the news, I was at the bar mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was at the bar having my typical whatever. And, you know, it was a typical day. I think it was a, a Tuesday. Yeah, it was a Tuesday or I think it was a Tuesday. Yeah. And I remember sitting there and I watched it on the TV. It was unfolding. And I was like, oh, my God, look what's happening. And, you know, it's happening. Right. Mass shootings has been happening. But this one in particular, just like Sandy Hook, this one in particular with the school and the elementary. And I think about my own son. That's what woke me up. Having a child, going through the, the stressors of, of a child, you know, the newborn stage, all that stuff, and then seeing these children that are, you know, five, six years older than my child, five, six years away from when my son would enter into a school, like at that, that's what really woke me up, Paul. I think viscerally, it woke me up. Like it was beyond my alcoholism. It was beyond what I'm doing to myself. It was like, look at this. Look what the capabilities of this cruel world is. And I'm just adding to it by you know, via alcohol. Um, that's what really kind of gave me that big motivating, like, you know what, this is the day then today is the day I left the bar. I only had the two drinks, I think two or three, which I was going to plan to have, you know, 10 or 12. Sure. Only had the two or three. I stopped right there. It like, that was like a sober moment, if you will. And I stopped and I was like, that's it. That's wow. it. And if you're not going to do it for yourself, Santino, do it for the kids. Sure. I think that's what woke me up. You bring yeah. children to the equation. It starts to wake people up a little bit more than you think. Yeah. 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 And, a big part of that is, you know, after, I mean, the stats are so uncomfortable. They're, they're so disconcerting, right? I mean, I, I, we definitely lead the world in some categories like economic, uh, you know, that stuff. We also lead the world in, in mass shootings. I think last year we totaled over 600 or 700 total mass shootings. And with everyone, a couple more people wake up. If that's a positive, that can come out of it. But you're right. I've also felt like, what can I do? Like, what yeah. is going on here? There's almost another podcast project that once we merge into the titles, like what the F are we doing? But here's the thing we are doing our part. Cause I've said, what the hell can I do here? But as Gandhi said, we have to be the change that we want to be and us quitting drinking us cleaning up the pollution that we are putting in the quantum airwaves that we are adding to the universe. I feel there's a universal law that an act of kindness will promote another act of kindness. And I was struggling to be kind when I was blacked out or, or, or hung over at any inter- with any interaction that I had with another, with another human being. So there is this yeah. feeling of despair that when we see these mass shootings on TV. And I remember in 99 or 2000, I was in Colorado at a future business leaders of America conference in high school. 
And we turned on the TV because that was the mass shooting of Columbine. And I was like, what the fudge? What world do I live in? And that was like 150 miles away from me. Um, And and so I'm just telling you listeners right now, if you do have that feeling, what can I do? Work on yourself because the age of pointing outward, there's a Jesus quote that I love, you know, you can point at the splinter in somebody else's eye, but let's not ignore the plank in our own eyes. So me and you, Santino, we have been addressing the plank, you burning the ships. We are addressing our own inner turmoil, our own pollution. And that's just being a human as part of it. You inherit your parents' energy, you inherit your communities, the generational trauma, all that stuff. Just being a human being, you're going to get your ass kicked, big T, little T, that doesn't matter. It's going to happen. But we need to stop projecting. And like, do I have the answer to mass shootings? I don't know, (laughs) but all I know is I can focus on myself. And there's one more thing, Santino, I want to talk to you before we hit the rapid fire round is I I live in a shelter town of Bozeman, Montana. It's just, it's a small, it's like a paradise up here. I'm so blessed where where I'm at, but I went to visit my family or my brother in Seattle last year. And I stayed in uh, Queen Anne and I had to walk my dog uh, a couple blocks every night. And I was, there was a snowstorm which is rare, but I remember me and my dog were stepping over the legs a couple of times of homeless people. And it, it, it just got me. I, I, I was looking left and right. I'm like, is this the zombie apocalypse? I, I couldn't understand how we were okay with this as a, as a society. And you work with the homeless. This is also yeah. another crisis, the COVID-19 yes. crisis, the opioid crisis, mass shootings crisis. There's an addiction, mental health crisis. All of these things I do feel are environmental and we're just piecing where we're just putting band-aids on this massive uh, 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 band-aids on the source, which is just unrest of the environment that we live in. I feel, I feel like environments are fomenting, creating all mental disorders, all inflammations, many of the, of the illnesses and, and homeless is an offshoot of that. What do you think the issues of homelessness is, is that related to addiction and mental health? And what do we do about it? Sure, absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up. And, you know, just for everyone too, uh, with that, you know, I've been working with the homeless for the past few years um, in different agencies or whatever, but it's all really the same concept and, you know, street outreach, basically. And I think one thing, one of the things that I can kind of attribute to a lot of this is, you know, there is a mental health part of that. And I know it's very like, you know, a trendy yet controversial thing that we, you know, we're all trying to figure out and trying to keep up with that. But for me, I like to just go right down, you know, to the front line of it all. It's, the housing crisis is the housing crisis because, you know, nobody, it's too much money to pay for a house or, or rent or whatever, and you don't get paid enough. So the, I know they like to talk about the whole supply and demand and sure for different people, different markets, but for the homeless, a lot of it is they just don't stand a chance by the day. You know, I think for the most part, homeless people don't ask to be homeless. Just like the same thing. You can say the same way of, you know, we don't ask to be housed, right? There is an action and an inaction or a cause and effect for us to get where we are. And I think for the homeless, it's like there is no support for them. They don't have any family. They don't have any friends or they might. And they've been shunned or emotionally cut off or estranged. I work with a lot of elderly whose kids my age don't even want to be a part of them anymore. Mm. And that's what breaks my heart the most in the regards of look at what happens. And, you know, a lot of my clients will tell me, well, you know what? This is kind of my fault because... They don't want to be a part of me because I've been an alcoholic for 50 years. You know, you think about that, too, and that aspect of substance abuse. It's like, well, that kind of caused you to be in this place in your life right now, too. Sure. 
Yeah, it's not a simple answer, but again, homelessness is on the rise in every major city in America, the homelessness camps. Um, I've even seen in a small town of Bozeman, like, wow, there are more people on the corners. And, you know, when are we going to address this? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, but as I, what I do know, like I said, Santino, what can we do about it? We're already doing yeah. our part by cleaning up, as they say in the rooms, our side of the street. Okay, Santino, I have loved this chat with you. We have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions in 10, to 30 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I'm ready, yeah, let's do it. Santino, what's the one thing you've learned about yourself since quitting drinking? Uh, one thing I've learned about myself is that I am worthwhile, I am important, and I am definitely a pertinent part of my today's society. No matter how hard and how complex the society is getting, I'm here and I'm, I'm grateful for that. What's the best sober moment you've had? The best sober moment I have was basically um, waking up with a good night's sleep, a genuine good night's sleep, not having to worry about whether it's good or not. What's your favorite poison-free drink? Uh, I did try a couple of like uh, NAs and stuff like that, but my 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 favorite one is my seltzer water. I, I love the seltzer water. It's just always something I've always loved as a kid too. What's the point of life, Santino? What, say it again, I'm sorry. Oh, what? What's the point of life? <laughs> oh, the point of oh I, that, that is exactly what I thought you said. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I did. I was like, oh, okay, You're great. Like, Pass, um, next question. <laughs> it took, you took me to the philosophical fourth gear there, um, and we we're just starting out in the parking lot. Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, life being, um, wait, so I think the point of life is what it really is. The point of life is the point to live, the point to coexist, but the point to be doing what is good for you, therefore will be good for the world. I think the point of life is being able to perpetuate those ripple effects we like to talk about, but also not letting it to be any more of an anomaly and let it be reality. I, I think that's the point of life. Not to get too deep and philosophical, but I feel like the point of life is to be here, to do good, and to leave a good, good legacy and trend for the next generation, for your kids, for your you know nephews, nieces, whatever, for them to grow up into something good too. There's a chance we are living that point of life right now. All right, yeah. Santino, what's your favorite 2000 to 2003 hip hop star from the Midwest? Oh my God, uh, I'm, I'm gonna have to go with Nelly. <laughs> ah, that's what I was going for too. Okay, well, I mean, yeah. yeah, and if you had a pet tarantula, what would you name it? Oh man, if I had a pet tarantula, I think I would name it Charlotte. Love it, what's your favorite pizza topping? My favorite pizza topping is definitely mushroom. That's what's up. And a parting piece of guidance you can give the listeners. Parting piece of guidance. So um, for everyone listening, um, whether wherever you are on your journey, just know that we have a plethora of resources out there. You know, whether you have phone numbers or apps or communities or gatherings, and I know we're kind of getting out of COVID, so like we're able to kind of socialize more and more physically, just know that you have options and availability there to help you whatever you need, because it more than likely somebody or something or any entity has gone through what it is. That's what it's there for. Um, so don't feel like you're alone. It's there. And before we depart, Santino, give listeners your own. You might need to ditch the booze if line. Yes, you might need to ditch the booze if you are constantly worried about stocking the fridge with your alcoholic beverage that you already took out and consumed 
and then trying to convince others who look in that fridge that it's the same bottle or same can that was there before. Or also, and or, like what I used to do, was fill it up with water and put the cap back on. Ah, I love it. Good stuff, Santino. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really good job. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. As I mentioned, Ron is going to take us home with the outro music today. But quick snippet about Ron. So this past February, we had our first alcohol-free ukulele course online. Uh, I had a great time teaching it. We had a great cohort. Um, And I personally thought we'd have 10, 15, maybe 20 tops sign up. So I think we hit 20 registrations the first day. I was very pleasantly surprised with that. And once we hit about 50 registrations, I said to myself, wait a second, I need another sober ukulele teacher. And I recall from our very first Restore, or maybe it was Restore 2 in July, that we had a musician out of, out of California. And this musician named Ron was on a road trip. He passed through Bozeman, Montana. I had lunch with him and his wife. Um, and I reached out to Ron. I said, hey, Ron, do you know how to play the ukulele? I'm looking for other sober musicians. Ron said, F yeah, I know how to play the ukulele. Let's do it. So I feel the universe puts people on your path at just the right time. And Ron is an extremely talented musician. I know he's transitioning. Um, now that alcohol is no longer his life, he's transitioning into pursuing that endeavor of musician or of being a musician full-time. So great job with that, Ron. I'm excited to hear your song and to share it with, with the audience. Here we go. Recovery Elevator, you took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. each other home. 